we got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the field. It go down. It go down in the field. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm superstar Frank Morano. And this is a story that is, to me, not at all surprising, but all the more reason that it needs to be addressed and called attention to. Headline, more young people are on multiple psychiatric drugs, according to a new study. This is an article I first saw in the New York Times about four days ago by Matt Richtel, who's been a guest on this show, who's a very bright man and a really wonderful reporter. Growing numbers of children and adolescents are being prescribed multiple, multiple psychiatric drugs to take simultaneously. This is according to a new study by researchers at the University of Maryland. The phenomenon is increasing, increasing, despite warnings that psychotropic drug combinations in young people have not been tested for safety or studied for their impact on the developing brain. Let's think about that for a second, guys. Think about that. The number of children being prescribed multiple psychiatric drugs to take simultaneously is going up despite warnings that psychotropic drug combinations in young people have not been tested for safety or studied for their impact on the developing brain. This was a study published Friday in the Journal of the American Medical Association And it looked at the prescribing patterns among patients 17 or younger enrolled in Medicaid from 2015 to 2020 in a single U.S. state that the researchers declined to name. In this group, there were nine and a half. There was a nine and a half percent increase in the prevalence of what they call polypharmacy which the study defined as taking three or more different classes of psychiatric medications, including antidepressants, mood-stabilizing anticonvulsants, 
sedatives and drugs for ADHD and anxiety drugs. The study looked at only one state, but state data have been used in the past to explore this issue in part because of the relative ease of gathering data from Medicaid, which is the health insurance program administered by states. At the same time, some research using nationally weighted samples have revealed the increasing prevalence of polypharmacy among young people. One recent paper drew data from the National Ambulatory Medical Care Survey and found that in 2015, 40.7% of people aged 2 to 24 in the United States who took a medication for ADHD also took a second psychiatric drug. That figure had risen from 26% in 2006. So the number of people between age 2 and 24, according to that second paper, not related to the Journal of the American Medical Association study that I just alluded to, went from 26% to 40.7% in nine years. This latest data from the University of Maryland shows that in at least one state, and we don't know what state it is, could be your state, The practice continues to grow and was significantly more likely among youths who were disabled or in foster care. So the if you're disabled or in foster care, the greater likelihood is that you're on multiple psychiatric drugs. I have to tell you, as somebody that is leery of the pharmaceutical industry. As somebody that is very concerned about the health of young people, as somebody that has real concerns about the uh, process by which the FDA approves many of these psychiatric drugs, I find this very, and and, uh, not the least of which as a father, I find this incredibly troubling. I find this incredibly troubling. I have long said, and this is going back 10 or 15 years now, that so many kids that I have observed are on medication that I don't think need to be. And years ago, I don't think they would have been prescribed it. And I I, want to be very clear that obviously there are a lot of young people that are probably being prescribed these drugs properly. So if your son or your grandson is getting these psychiatric drugs, please don't flush them down the toilet and said Frank, say Frank Morano thought they were overprescribed. No, find a doctor you trust, work with your doctor, and you know monitor your own children's behavior. I just find that the fact that the number of kids taking multiple psychotropic drugs simultaneously is going up when this has not been tested for safety or studied for the impact on brain development, I find this incredibly troubling. Incredibly troubling. And the fact that it seems the lower on, the, the worse off you are in terms of disability or foster care, where presumably maybe a foster parent is a little bit more likely to accept a doctor's recommendation of a psychiatric drug prescription than, say, an actual parent would. I find it even more disturbing because it seems like maybe some issues that are behavioral um, or maybe due to some socioeconomic instances are being treated as if they're psychiatric disorders. And I find it very disconcerting. What can we do about it? I don't know. The first thing uh, that I think maybe you can do about it, if this is your kid, 
that they're prescribing something for is not ask for it necessarily. A lot of parents I see hear about the effect of some drugs, obviously Adderall and Ritalin are the two best uh, examples that come to mind when it comes to young people. They hear about the beneficial aspects of these drugs for concentration and things like that. And then the parents get in the habit of asking these doctors for drugs for their children. I would not ask for it. Two is if your doctor prescribes this for your child or your foster child, I think you really need to ask the question, is this necessary? Because I think this is going in the wrong direction. Millions of children in this country have received a diagnosis of ADHD. When I was in school, when I was a child, I mean, I'm talking elementary school, I don't think they even had a word. I never heard of a single person that I went to school with having ADHD. I'm sure it existed. Then a couple of years after I was out of school, I started to hear ADD. And then it was not until I was, in, I think maybe in college, that I ever heard the term ADHD. Does that mean it didn't exist? Of course not. It's nothing, uh, there's nothing unusual about uh, new disorders being discovered later in life. But I do think that we're living in an era where when it comes to psychiatry, where there's a lot of guessing involved, and it's not me saying so. Dr. Alan Francis, who actually wrote the dsm four, a very prominent um, psychiatrist, he has said that um, if you look at not just children, but if you look at what every single person has in this country – there could be something that qualifies as a mental disorder or a psychiatric disorder under the DSM-5, meaning something that a psychiatrist could give you drugs for. You know, maybe we'll try and get um, Alan Francis on this show again. He wrote a really interesting book. I interviewed him about it at the time, 11 years ago, called Saving Normal. And I think from 11 years ago, this problem has only gotten worse. I think this is a sad state of affairs. You want to comment on it, you're welcome to. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. Speaking of uh, a sad state of affairs, I also want to um, I want to mention the uh, death of uh, the uh, Russian opposition leader, Alexei Navalny. Uh, I, we've talked about Navalny a little bit on this show, 47 years old, an attorney, um, a fierce Putin critic, went back to Russia to face charges and was serving, I believe, a 19-year sentence and, um, and, and died in custody. I, I think most people believe that Vladimir Putin was very likely responsible for this. I, I can't prove that, but... I mean, I also can't prove that the sky is going to be blue tomorrow, but I still have a pretty good guess that uh, that it would be a very sad situation. Uh, this is a guy with a family who had a lot of supporters who um, at a time when he was knew that it was dangerous to speak out against Putin, kept doing so. And I give him a lot of credit for that. I mean, <clears throat> what I'm not going to do is what so many other people have done and hold Navalny uh, up to be a saint of some, store, of some sort. 
he was, um, you know, at various points in his career, an extreme nationalist. He got kicked out of a, a liberal political party. For, and then um, he was always a lot more popular abroad than he actually was in Russia when compared to other opposition leaders in Russia. The communists actually have much, many more followers in Russia than uh, Navalny does, and so do uh, liberal Democrats. But it is a, certainly a shame, and I think most people would imagine that uh, it's certainly something that Vladimir Putin had something to do with. One of my favorite guests on the subject of Russia has been George Beebe, who's with the Quincy Institute. He's been a diplomat. He's written a lot of books on Russia and uh, been a leading policy voice on Russia for decades. One of my favorite people to talk to. He was on, uh, I don't remember what network he was on, on Friday. Uh, it was NBC News uh, talking about the uh, the reaction from the Kremlin over the death of, uh, of Navalny. They have every intent of obscuring what actually happened to Navalny. I don't think we're ever going to get any kind of reliable official report on his cause of death. But President Biden, I think, is exactly right. Ultimately, Putin and the Russian government are responsible for Navalny's death. Can't argue with that. Uh, BB talked about the timing of Navalny's death. Whether they ordered an assassination yesterday or not, and frankly, I doubt they did, I think uh, the timing of Navalny's death is actually poor for Putin. He's got presidential elections coming up in less than four weeks. There's a debate going on in Congress over aid to Ukraine. Uh, Navalny's death at this time doesn't help Putin on either of those issues. So my guess is that this is a result of accumulated uh, wear and tear on Navalny under very onerous prison conditions, repeated poisoning attempts by the Russian authorities on him. They eventually took their toll. That's my guess. It could be. You know, we obviously have no way to know. I did see one report that there was bruising on his body as well. So, you know, it could be one of those situations where someone in prison, either another inmate or someone that worked at the prison thinking they were doing Putin's uh, bidding, beat him mercilessly and thought that that's what uh, that's what Mother Russia would want. I have no idea, but it's uh, certainly a shame. It's a, a shame whenever anybody dies for being an activist which to me, this is what um, this is what happened with Navalny. One thing I will mention, though, I, I did not cover much because I feel like people are over me saying uh, that uh, we need to pursue peace with Russia, and I can't do the same thing every day. I did not cover much the death of Gonzalo Lira. Think about the death of Gonzalo Lira in custody in a Ukrainian prison. This is, and this is an American citizen, Gonzalo Lira. And then ask yourself, why did the death of Gonzalo Lira in Ukrainian custody get comparatively so little attention in Western media as compared to the death of Alexei Navalny in Russian custody? Well, part of it has to do with the fact that Navalny was better known than Gonzalo Lira. But I think another big part of it has to do with the fact that reinforcing this Putin as boogeyman uh, narrative that the Western media is only happy to spoon feed you, that fits with the Navalny death. It doesn't fit 
when we're trying to portray Zelensky as Churchill meets Mandela to point out that he threw an American citizen in prison and that American citizen died. Here's what I have no tolerance for. All these American politicians, Democrat and Republican, using Navalny's death as an excuse to send more money and weapons to Ukraine. Here was uh, Congressman Mike Turner, Republican of Ohio, taking a break from uh, publicly calling for the president to uh, declassify information the day before he was supposed to meet with the director of national intelligence on uh, NBC News on Meet the Press, I believe, talking about Navalny and what this means for the future of aid to Ukraine. This is certainly very troubling. It's part of the murderousness that uh, we see both in Ukraine and and here as the record of Vladimir Putin, and it certainly shows how dangerous he is. Well, I guess the big question now is what happens next? President Biden has said he's considering his response. What do you think the consequences should be? I think that um, as a result of Navalny's death, that that we should even be that more strong in uh, funding Ukraine and passing this in the House and the Senate and dedicated in Navalny's off uh, uh, in his legacy, sending a message to Putin. We're going to dedicate sending weapons to Ukraine uh, to Navalny's memory. You know, I have said repeatedly there are two things that I would like when I die. One, if possible, I'd like to be cryogenically frozen. Okay, maybe that's not... Maybe that's not in the cards. You know, I'm, I'm going to work it out, see if I can get insurance policy to pay the bills on that. Okay. The other thing, and mark my words, please, those of you that I know and those of you that know me as just a listener, the one thing that I would like is for when I die, no one to ever say, oh, gee, if Frank were here, he would really want X. No, you don't assume you would know what I would want. If Frank were here... He would really want you to vote for why. No, no, don't assume I would want that person to vote for anybody. Unless anyone can point to anywhere where Navalny ever expressed support for flowing U.S. arms into Ukraine to kill more Russian soldiers, politicians who are hijacking Navalny's death to push this neocon Russia hawk agenda are, I think, just shameful. I mean, using this guy's death and exploiting it for their own political purposes to borrow money from China, to send money, to send weapons to Ukraine so that we can prolong this war even more. It's just sick. And it's not only Republicans doing it. Amy Klobuchar also on Meet the Press, she said this to uh, Christian Welker. Our job right now, if you talk about avenging the death of the hero Navalny, if you talk about anything for our democracy and actually for our economic partners across the world, it is to get this security package over the line. And so extreme Republicans are stopping it right now. The president's standing up for it. The Senate is standing up. 22 Republicans in the U.S. Senate voted for it, including the lead Republicans on armed services and foreign relations. It's time for them to get the job done. So for Amy Klobuchar to say avenging the death of the hero Navalny means passing the Ukraine funding immediately is just absurd. 
Navalny was not a proponent of the war in Ukraine. He was backing an anti-war presidential candidate. These people, Klobuchar, Turner, and others, they are hijacking his death for legislative purposes. And I think that's really unhealthy. But when it comes to Russia, this is the one area of policy that you could say whatever you want. And nobody ever holds you accountable. Nikki Haley, for instance. Uh, Nikki Haley was on ABC's This Week with George Stephanopoulos. And obviously we know where Nikki Haley falls on Russia policy. And shame on Donald Trump for ever appointing her to anything. She should have no place in any Trump administration. And I think it says a lot about Trump's ability to pick people that he picked Nikki Haley. This is what she said yesterday. And let's remind people that Putin said once he takes Ukraine... Poland and the Baltics are next. Now he is putting soldiers around those countries just like he did Ukraine. And if that happens, those are NATO countries that immediately puts America at war. That is what we are trying to avoid. And that's why this aid package is so important. Ukraine's not asking for troops. They're just asking for the equipment and ammunition to win this war. They have a great fighting force. We need to give them what they need so that they can win, so that we can prevent having sending any of our military men and women to fight. Just listen again and again. I I, I won't belabor the point on Russia. I know some people believe it's tiresome, but because of Navalny's death, this was the issue du jour on all the news shows this weekend. Listen again to what Nikki Haley says at the very beginning here. And let's remind people that Putin said once he takes Ukraine, Poland and the Baltics are next. She said, Putin said once he takes Ukraine, Poland and the Baltics are next. No, he didn't. This quote doesn't exist. She totally made that up. There is a long history of Putin speaking in the public record. And you cannot find anywhere him saying. And let's remind people that Putin said once he takes Ukraine, Poland and the Baltics are next. And and what makes Haley so dishonest, honestly, is that she has used this fake quote repeatedly and has never called on it including by Jonathan Carl in that interview on ABC News, because she's usually dealing with media organizations that are more interested in inflating the Russian threat and lobbying for additional Ukraine money than journalistically checking if what Nikki said is actually factual. Can you imagine if Donald Trump said such a blatantly factual error? There wouldn't just be fact checks going out uh, for Donald Trump, there'd be sirens. There'd be sirens everywhere. It would sound like air raid sirens in the middle of the Cold War saying that he's lying. This is incredible. Um, There's Putin says a great deal in public, more than enough for there to be a large record of his public statements. That record does not contain the statement Nikki Haley is attributing to him. She just made it up. And she's able to get away with it because I I don't know why. Well, I suspect we do. Hey, uh, do we have time here? No. Okay. Um, Joe and David, if you guys want to hold, I will get to you. James Flippin is in for um, Gnome Laden today. And one of my favorite things to do on President's Day is 
look back at the life and career of Harold Stassen. So we'll try and do that, if time permits, within the next 32 minutes. But first, we'll chat with James Flippin, who's in for Gnome Laden straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Other side of midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Uh, our own news director, Noam Layden, is taking a well-deserved day off. But don't worry, we have plenty of news to bring you in his stead. Stand by for the other side of midnight's news. And its affiliated stations present national and international news with Frank Morano and news director Noam Layden. Their summary of the world news and personal comments. Get the rest of the story. Jumpin' James Flippin' is here. Hello, James. Hey, Frank. Good morning. Did uh, you have a beard last time I saw you? Probably not. You're looking good. I like Thank it. Thank you. Yeah, I decided I like to, because uh, I'm going with the, the buzz before the bick, as I call it. Eventually, I do plan giving my balding to go with the full bick on yeah, my head. Yeah, you got to do that. The, but I'm buzzing that. That's right the now. Move. That's the move. And with the shorter hair... I'm going with a little bit of a beard. I like it. Uh, it's a good look for you. Thank I, you. I think it looks uh, sharp. You look thinner also since the last time I saw you. That's interesting. I have been doing the exercise bike in the yeah, morning and yeah, trying yeah. to okay. cut down on sugar and carbs. How many miles are you doing uh, in the morning? Right now, I'm up to about 40 minutes in 40 the minutes. So I don't know so what, what is, I do. Oh, you don't pay attention to I don't to how pay many attention miles? to that. I just try to get a sweat going, and I try to do 40 minutes So, so I'm doing the same thing, but morning for me is you know the evening, right? Right. right. Um, but uh, what happens? is I get on this bike for an hour or so, mm-hmm. and I find I'm hungry. I just yeah. want to eat whatever's, whatever's around. Yeah, well, that's, uh, so yesterday, after I had done the bike, there was a, a donut left over from this box of donuts we'd had earlier in the week, and I ate the donut. And my husband was saying to me, what are you doing? You're, you're, you're nullifying the bike. I know. The I know what I'm doing, but I'm, I'm, it's so hard. You can't control it. It's so hard. And let me just say really quickly that as far as food goes, I just feel obligated to chime in on the fridge label affair. Yes, yes, yes. I I don't like to use gate. You know, people overuse gate when it comes to, but this is the fridge label affair. I just want to say that the labeling is really more about people not wanting their Tupperware thrown away. At the end of the week. That is So that's why you put a label on it is to make sure that the cleaning staff knows this is someone's thing. It's not an invitation. (laughs) No way. No way. It's otherwise this stuff stays in there forever and just starts sticking. What's in the news? All right. So uh, I was at a party on Saturday (laughs) and there were some gentlemen there who were enjoying non-alcoholic beer. Ah. 
and they were saying that they really enjoy this non-alcoholic beer, that actually apparently non-alcoholic Guinness is pretty good. This is a non-alcoholic Guinness? This is a non-alcoholic Guinness, and this guy was saying that this is pretty good. I was thinking to myself, I don't know, it's not really something that appeals to me, but it's on the rise. You know, there's been a lot of money invested in non-alcoholic beverages, and stats show that people are really going for this stuff, at least in increasing numbers. Um, last year, beer sales were down four and a half percent, but non-alcoholic beer is expected to grow five and a half percent over the next ten years, according to global studies. So, what do you think about this? You know, I I've tried some of these over the years. I I, uh, I don't like them really. I mean, I think that uh, if you have a health reason that involves you refraining from alcohol, let's say you're a pregnant woman, or maybe you have an issue with diabetes, and you like the idea of holding a beer it's fine but i mean i'm not the biggest beer drinker anyway but to me i find that most of them don't taste that great and are you really that desperate for a a whiff of the beer that you need to have this kind of a placebo i don't know it's not for me my friend anthony uh do you follow any of these healthy ice creams like Halo Top or Arctic Zero. I'm aware or, of Halo there's, Top. There's, I, there's like four or five. I've of never them. tried it. But. They're super low calorie. They're loaded with protein, and they're uh, they're they're pretty expensive. But they're I think those are the two main ones: Arctic Zero and Halo Top. Okay. But my friend Anthony, I asked him years ago. I said, "Did you ever try any of these healthy ice creams?" Because he's a big you know exercise person and everything. And you can eat a whole container, a whole big container, and it's maybe 200 calories. I, I it would be a thousand calories. Yeah, like two hundred. And he says, "No, you know, I'd rather eat real ice cream and just, you know, make that a treat once right. in a while than eat this watered down diet ice cream." I feel that way about beer. Now, maybe if you're giving up alcohol for a lifetime, it's a different situation than if you're doing it for forty days. But if I can't make it forty days without a placebo beer, yeah. then. Then it's time for me to be institutionalized. And I, I, I agree. I think you're uh, spot on with that. So, all right. So in the topic of teetotaling, mm-hmm. I feel like you are a fan of those older terms. No I, I didn't oh, yeah. hear you mention that at all, yes. but you are, in fact, teetotaling these days. Currently, yes. Um, there are some tips here about getting the most out of your coffee when it comes to energy. Because I heard you saying that you can't have the coffee too late when it keeps you up. You're, you, that's right, something that right, exactly. keeps you I, up, what, right? What used to happen is I used to drink... You know, you know these crazy hours. I mean, you, you who don't usually work overnights, you're probably mainlining coffee. I, dr- but, I pound it all the time. So I would find I would drink three, four, five cups, and then I would be home. I would go home and I'd be wired. Yeah. I wouldn't be able to fall asleep. Yeah, right. For hours. Well, this is just a study out of the UK, which is saying that in terms of getting the most energy out of your coffee, you should really wait 45 minutes before having your first cup. Did you know that? I I had seen this headline, but I didn't read the article. Why? Why do they say that? It has to do with your cortisol hormone. So it follows a specific rhythm when it comes to your sleep cycle. And elevated levels of cortisol can impact your immune system. It's actually kind of a problem. But in terms of drinking coffee, as soon as you get up, it kind of messes with that cortisol hormone, which is a stress regulator, reducer, all that kind of stuff. And it also has to do with blood sugar and blood pressure and all that kind of stuff. So you should really be more aware of your cortisol. Okay, I can buy that. that's where the early coffee, I guess, and caffeine. And and who is this authority that's telling us to wait 45 minutes before waking up? Dr. Dr. Deborah Lee, who is working with Get Laid Beds, a UK furniture maker. 
Okay, well, it sounds credible. If uh, if Get Laid Beds has acquired <laughs> Dr. Lee, then, then clearly I'll go with her yes. expertise. And then the last story I have with you, Frank, is an international story. Mm. Um, but it connects to stuff that's been going on here in the U.S. And I know um, Washington's uh, you know officials have been warning about this recently here in New York. We talk about it a lot where there are these lithium-ion batteries yes. that are really popular with you know all kinds of like you know scooters, carts, all kinds of stuff that yeah, has e-bikes. rechargeable e-bikes, and they're a fire risk. On Saturday, a fire broke out at a warehouse in France, north of Toulouse, and I think it's still burning, basically. I mean, these things, like once they get going... You can't put them out. You can't stop these fires. So I was just curious your thoughts. You know, you're a, you're a modern guy. You're always thinking about like transportation, how, how to change the you know climate stuff like that. People are into this battery stuff. What are your thoughts? I, I think these look, look. I mean, these knockoff um, replacement e bike batteries that have been the cause of so many of these fires in New York. I think they should be banned. And I can't understand Outright, why. Like just get rid of them. A- absolutely. I mean the. The knockoffs, right? I mean, I think there. I don't know what the situation was in um, in Europe. I with think that it's a legit. Story. I think it's a legit one. So, there, I mean, you know, I think part of the problem is these things ignite suddenly, but part of the other problem is it's very difficult to put out the the fires that start with these. I think uh, in New York, we've seen way too many fires started with these replacement e-bike uh, yeah. lithium-ion batteries. I think it's it's very, very troubling. Yeah, people charge them in, like, the hallway, and then, you know, obviously <laughs> you've got the fire risk for the entire building. Where And if anybody who's had even, like, a knockoff laptop battery, oh, yeah. I think you know how, how much hotter it gets than, like, the legit ones. So... You could see where that would come together. Yeah, it's uh, but it's scary. It's scary. I don't know what it maybe maybe banning them is impractical given the prevalence. But uh, I don't know how many fires need to start and how many more people need to die before there's some serious regulatory effort here. I think it's very very frightening. All right, um, enjoy the rest of your President's Day. Thank wor- you, Frank. Working. Are you in uh, any other days this week? Um, no, I think Noam's back and on his normal schedule going on. You know, All tomorrow right. his right. his one son being off from school today. They're getting some time to spend oh together, that's so. nice that's that's good my son is uh off from nursery school uh or f- from preschool today so it's created a a child care dilemma oh boy um you know all week but but you know fortunately he has several grandparents that are willing to pitch so, in so you need that extra cup of coffee <laughs> <laughs> thank you james and now you know the rest of the story 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. You know, in keeping with um, with my conversation earlier on uh, the history of President's Day, I read this article. I'm going to share it if you want to read it on, on my Facebook page, um, facebook.com slash Morano fan. Essentially, why President's Day is America's strangest holiday. Give it a read when you can, because I think if we're going to be wishing everybody a happy President's Day today, uh, everyone that we see, it's important to keep in mind. We'll see where that goes. Hey, I saw that um, George Santos is suing Jimmy Kimmel. He could have given me a heads up about that last time I had him on the show. You know, I mean, I mean, I know he was fine. We were talking about Super Bowl stuff, but so be it. All right. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. Let me get to a couple of quick calls here, and then I want to make sure we have time to talk about uh, Harold Stass. And David in the Bronx has been holding. Hey, David. Yes, good morning. 
Um, a couple of things that you said about Navalny. I just want to correct the record. Now, you are correct that Putin never actually said the quotes attributed to him by Nikki Haley, who, as you know, I don't like. But he has indicated over the years that he believes it's Russia's role to protect Russian minorities in places like the Baltics and in countries like Poland and the former Yugoslavia. So there is the possibility of Russian military engagement in those areas. Right, right. What what you just said, David, what you just said is very reasonable, very rational. It's a very logical one plus two, then maybe three. That is not at all what Nikki Haley said when she says... let's remind people that Putin said once he takes Ukraine... Poland and the Baltics are next. I mean, that's a big difference, what she said and what you just said. Well, again, she's never going to be president of the United States. So, I mean, why are we even talking fair about enough, Fair enough, fair enough. All right, but let's be clear, though. I mean, what bothers me, and I think it bothers a lot of other listeners, is that you frequently talk about Russia like there's no threat to us at all. And I'm going to ask you, out, just out front, Do you believe that Russia is not a threat to the United States? Because if you do, then you should tell us, because that that would make me think. No, absolutely. On the contrary. I say um, all the time that because Russia has the largest stockpile of nuclear weapons in the world, that is reason number one that we should avoid uh, direct conflict with them, especially now that there's a possibility that they may have hypersonic, um, you know, uh, some sort of weapon system, maybe even nuclear that they can use to attack American satellites. I think a Russia is an enormous threat, which is why we should do whatever we can to pursue detente rather than a continuing to ramp up a proxy war. Right. Listen, I agree with you on that. I don't want war either. But when you're dealing with an authoritarian dictator like Vladimir Putin, you have to be very careful because anytime you give an inch, they'll take a mile. And he is not our friend. He never was our friend. And if I could recommend something to your listeners, and maybe you have seen it also, um, um, PBS did a special. It was called uh, Putin and the Presidents. And it talks about the mistakes going back to the Clinton years that we made with our handling of Russia. And there's plenty of blame to go around. Okay, but in the end, he is not a good guy. And for him to basically do this when there was the Munich Security Conference going on and other things to me is a signal that he basically says he doesn't care what we think. And he knows that this country is divided and he knows that Republicans don't want to send aid to Ukraine. And he's doing this stuff anyway. That, to me, is a big sign that we're dealing with someone who isn't interested in peace. They're not offering to negotiate they want the, the territory that they've invaded. If we give, not we, if we force the Ukrainians to give up by not helping them, what signal does that send to well, no, no. Well, a That's couple my things. A couple of things. Um, one, at the onset of the conflict, both sides, and this is not me saying this, the former Israeli Prime Minister Naftali Bennett has said so, as of others, both sides were willing to uh, deal, you know, uh, both at, before the war started and once the war started, there was uh, willingness on both sides to negotiate an end to this at, <clears throat> instead of having this drag on for two years. Instead, Boris Johnson and other Western leaders discouraged uh, Zelensky from doing this that second the position of zelensky and you know the people in america that are supporting zelensky 
is so incredibly unreasonable with respect to Crimea that um, that Crimea will have to be a part of Ukraine again. Now, if you think about it, Crimea, and I'm not going to do a whole half hour like uh, Vladimir Putin did with Tucker Carlson last week, but Crimea was part of Russia from the time of Catherine the Great to the time of Joseph Stalin. At the time that Stalin gave Crimea to uh, Ukraine, they were both part of the Soviet Union. So it was almost like the equivalent of giving um, a a a Staten Island from New York to New Jersey. Not that big of a deal when we're all part of the United States. But when we're in different countries and the overwhelming majority of people in Crimea are all Russian and they clearly want to be a part of Russia, I mean, that's such an unreasonable demand. And yet it's one that Zelensky has been unwavering on. Right. No, I understand that. I mean, in the end, it comes down to nationalism. If Zelensky said, you know what, we're going to give up Crimea, we're going to give up these other parts that Russia has grabbed, he would be probably in a buried in a short time later. The Ukrainians are not going to give up territory willingly. And unfortunately, I agree with you about Crimea. That's been Russian territory historically. But as far as the other parts of Ukraine that Russia is now in possession of, they can't just give those parts of Ukraine up. That's where a lot of their industry is located. That's where a lot of their farmland is. They can't give that up. So yeah, in I the think, end, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. In the end, I think it's not our job to force anything, but I think we can't abandon them either. I think we have to at least give them enough assistance to let them fight on, at least to the point where the Russians will withdraw from the territory that they uh, occupied since two years ago. So, David, how much How much would you be willing to give? In terms, of, in terms of money and weapons, how much money would you say is enough? What is the final break-even? Is the point where you could say, okay, we've done our part for Ukraine. We've, we've gone along with this enough. What is the absolute most you would give them? Okay. In financial terms, I don't know if I can put a dollar amount on it, but I'll say this. We are suffering. As you know, I've emailed you about this, how the internet, uh, the affordable internet program is ending because there's no funding and all these other things. There are a lot of priorities that need to be addressed in this country. But Republicans who oppose this aid to Ukraine, they're not talking about spending that money in this country. They want to give it to rich people as tax cuts. Okay, they don't want to actually give this money to the American people. So if we're if we're not going to give this money to the American people, I would rather spend it in Ukraine, where at least we're weakening Russia so that it doesn't get more adventurous, because Vladimir Putin actually believed his military was capable of taking over Ukraine. And it turned out because of corruption and other factors that it wasn't. All right. Now, if it wasn't Ukraine, it could have been somewhere else that we would have been forced to defend. Uh, David, so. You know, I have to um, I have to move on. Uh, good points all. The thing about this and and again, I, I've said this a hundred times, so I won't belabor the point. But the thing about this that makes this so frustrating is I think whenever this ends, uh, whether it's six months from now, a year from now, two years from now, we're going to see a Crimea that is part of Russia. The Donbass republics that are either part of Russia or pseudo-independent and Russian-aligned as client states, and a, a a Ukraine which is largely comprised of ethnic Ukrainians in what's what's been Western Ukraine, west of the Dnieper River, and what kills me is that we could have gotten to that point 
two years ago, saving hundreds of lives and hundreds of billions of dollars when, uh, unfortunately, all these lives have been lost, all this property has been lost, and all this money has been lost. And I appreciate what you said about, you know, domestic priorities versus foreign policy priorities in terms of spending. But it's not as if we have this money. We're borrowing this money in order to do it. Now, I, your point's well taken. Is it better to borrow money to, um, you know, send to uh, keep Vladimir Putin busy? Or is it better to borrow the money to finance a tax cut for the wealthy? I get that. I get that what you're saying. And, you know, I'm for, you know, balanced budgets and things like that. I'm not for doing that at all. I just don't necessarily see this helping Ukraine. I mean, maybe if that's the goal. And thank you for the call, David. If that's the goal, weakening Putin, that's how it should have been sold to the American people. Now, at least people like Bill Kristol are willing to sell it that way. But as far as I'm concerned, it was not at all billed that way. It was sold to us as this is our chance to help the Ukrainians. No one is being helped in Ukraine. This is only prolonging an endless war. And with more people dying. I mean, again, I, I get I get crazy when we talk about this because I view it as just such a waste and so dangerous for not only the United States and Ukraine and Russia. This is a situation where there are no winners except for the military uh, defense contractors whose stock price has gone up and who get to pay a lot of people like um, Nikki Haley and Jack Keane and others on their board. I just, it's, to me, it's the saddest thing in the world. 800-848-9222. We're going to do 15 seconds of fame in a moment. All right, let me, because I mentioned it, let me just briefly talk about Harold Stassen. Harold Stassen is, I think, an amazing man who, unfortunately, for the better part of the last 30, 40 years, maybe more, has kind of become a punchline. Harold Stassen was the governor of Minnesota. He was a, a he became governor as a very young man. He was in his 30s. And he left a very prominent career as governor of Minnesota. He was considered a leading candidate for president or vice president. He left that in order to run, excuse me, in order to voluntarily enlist in World War II. And fight for America in World War II. And then he helped liberate in World War II, in the military, American POWs. Then, after the war, he um, was a leader in the founding of the United Nations and the founding of the UN Charter, and then played a very prominent role in the Eisenhower administration. The man was a brilliant attorney who does have the distinction of having run for president more than anyone in history. He ran just about every year with the exception of, um, I think, 56 and 64, between 1948 and the year and 1992. No, between 2000, I think. I think he ran in 2000 also. So he ran many, many times for president, and that's what he's kind of best known for. Whereas I think if you compare Harold Stassen, I don't care what you think about his politics. If you compare the intellect of Harold Stassen, the principles of Harold Stassen, and the fact that he voluntarily left a prominent career in politics to fight in World War II, 
Ask yourself all of the people that are voting to um, have wars in Yemen and Ukraine and elsewhere. How many of them would leave their plush government job and their plush prominent political career in order to go and fight? I suspect very few. And Harold Stassen is somebody that I've always admired for that reason. I'm going to link on my Facebook page an interview I did with one of Stassen's biographers, uh, Steve Worrell, uh, after the show, if you want to check it out. Because I think it's worth listening to today of all days. Because this is a guy who should be respected and not a punchline. We'll do 15 seconds of fame straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Side at Midnight with Frank Morano. Side of midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Uh, now is your time to be heard on any subject you like for 15 seconds. Just give us a call 800-848-9222. The other side of midnight. This is 15 seconds of fame. fame. Jerry. Trial court level judges always have the discretion to sentence someone like Trump if he gets convicted. I don't know what you and Dominic are thinking. These are communist judges. Ford had to be pardoned Nixon to get out of that. Neil. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask how you can fleece your country. Raji. David. The batteries that you have talk about have to have no regulators. It's charging automatically, and they should not be relied on solely on the uh, uh, design. It should be always watched. Mike. Morning, Frank. Just curious on your bike. Do you have a basket and a bell? And with all that bike riding, why don't you get yourself a paper route, make some money, buy some cigars and some drinks? Jimmy. Legends Diner in Secaucus, the best old-fashioned tin diner with the best prices, portions, and values. And adorned with Hollywood legends, black and white photos. Legends Diner in Secaucus. Frank Morano, good day.